Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm joined today by Paul Hanley, the Editor, Tim Wyatt, our Digital Editor, and Madeline Davies, Deputy News and Features Editor. Sir Philip Moore's long-awaited review into the botched nomination of the Right Reverend Philip North to the Diocese of Sheffield in January this year has just been published. Paul, you've been reading it in some detail. Could you just set the scene a little bit how this came about? Sure. Um, uh, In January, it was announced that uh, Bishop Philip North uh, would be the next Bishop of Sheffield. He is a traditionalist, uh, which was not actually pointed out in the announcement when he was appointed, but everybody knows about this. Um, And uh, there then followed five weeks of quite extraordinary um, debate and um, manoeuvrings, uh, at the end of which he withdrew, uh, saying that uh, he the personal attacks on him had been very hard to take. It was a, a clear disaster for whatever whatever position you take. Um, this is this should not have happened in the way it happened. Um, and uh, Sir Philip Moore, who uh, used to be the Church of England Secretary General, was appointed to review exactly what had happened Uh, and because a lot of of the process was confidential um, this is the first time today that his um, uh, in his report that that, uh, the details of the case have been made public. This isn't the first time this has happened for Bishop Philip North because when he was nominated to be Bishop of Whitby in 2012 there was also opposition to his position on ordaining women and he withdrew then yes uh, he is um, a man of integrity and um, uh, he uh, has this image as do um, many of his objectors that the bishop is to be the focus of unity in the diocese and um, one of the things that emerges from um, Sir Philip's report is that essentially he was misled into thinking that um, the diocese would um, welcome a traditionalist in this post. One of the key findings in the, in the report that we've reported on the website today is that it didn't, did not occur to anyone to ask whether the diocese would accept a bishop who would not ordain women as priests. Uh, and this is the extraordinary thing, that um, for all the consultations that took place, the people involved and so on, the, um, the Vacancy and C Committee, which is the, um, the group within the diocese who um, considers what the next person they want should be like um, d- didn't think that um, uh, it would be either a woman or somebody who didn't ordain women they assumed that they would have the same sort of bishop as they had before somebody who um, a, a man who was um, happy to ordain women as priests um, so uh, in a sense this was a a hole that Philip North walked into that, that could easily have been avoided. And the report says that, uh, that Bishop Philip was, I mean, hesitant about taking on this role or even being interviewed for it because of concerns about this, but he received assurances that his appointment would be welcome in the diocese, but it seems those assurances were misleading. Yes, um, th- there was a sense of surprise and shock when um, he was that uh, the appointment was announced and therefore um, uh, it was clearly there'd been not enough preparation, not enough thought given to, to, to the sort of person that they were, they were after. Uh, 
But I think that applies to the whole of the Church of England, not just to the Diocese of Sheffield. And what comes out of this report is that, and uh, the point that Sir Philip makes quite seriously, is that um, although in 2014, when the Church of England agreed that women bishops could be uh, consecrated, and and that the the provisions would be made for the minority of people who um, couldn't accept women's ministry. There was a feeling that that was it, that although um, traditionalists continue to be concerned about their place in the Church of England, everybody else has just thought the idea was settled. Um, so no work has gone into the idea of, of how this phrase mutual flourishing can take place. In many ways, this is because people don't think in terms of principle. They think in terms of, of personalities and, and precise occasions. Um, therefore, in a way, this had to happen. It was, it was very unfortunate for the people involved. But, but without this precise, precise event uh, and the people involved, nobody was going to pay attention to this issue anymore. It's a lesson to everybody that that opinions are not they don't float in in some neutral space. They are held by people, and um, because they're held by people, they each have their own different nuances and different understandings. And the people who hold them are, um, are able to be hurt when you you um, you criticise them. So uh, all the talk of, of of mutual flourishing has to involve mutual care and, and mutual consideration. Your report talks about the influence of um, Martin Percy, the Dean of Christchurch, Oxford on all, on this. What, what does it say about his um, role? People in the diocese had a view that they were managing the objections to Bishop North's nomination um, at a particular point in the, in the process. Um, I think that was probably optimistic. I think there was a groundswell of, of opinion in the diocese that was beginning to be formed. But um, when um, Professor Percy published uh, a what was essentially a challenge to Bishop North to to either distance himself from the views of, of other traditionalists um, or consider his, his position, uh, it, it made the, the dispute a, a national a, a, event and, and, and people then paid more attention to what was going on in the diocese. It was no longer something that could, could find a local solution. There are many people who think that had he not written, had Professor Percy not written his piece then things might have been smoothed over. Um, that's just speculation, I don't know what the case is. But one of the things that Philip Moore says um, repeatedly is that um, people involved in this affair were all acting to the best of their ability, and that there were, he says, there are no villains in this story. That that people were were genuinely working out what their beliefs and consciences told them to to say. Does he does Philip Moore's report address the future of the five guiding principles and whether traditionalists can ever be appointed to diocesan posts again? Uh, he he does tackle this but he says really the answer to that is lies in the hands of the house of bishops and the church in general that um, he believes that the five guiding principles are only guiding principles they're not um, set in stone which is um, how some traditionalists are treating them on the other hand if nobody's going to be guided by them nobody in the majority is allows them to 
have any influence upon the way they think and act, then the settlement that was agreed to within the Church of England only, only three years ago um, can't stand. It essentially says that more work needs to be put into this. Next, the first findings of a major long-term study into clergy well-being have been released. Madeline, you've been following this. What are the key findings? So this is um, a study which is looking um, at the flourishing of ministers in the Church of England. Um, And it relates that both to the flourishing of their ministry and to their personal flourishing, their own well-being and how the two are interrelated. Um, It's also going to um, be closely linked to the fact that um, the Church of England wants to see this 50% increase in ordinance and so obviously wants to know more about the experiences they're likely to have um, post-ordination. Your piece starts by saying that ordinance may take comfort from the first fruits of this study. Um, Why is that? I think the the section that looks at well-being um, looks at um, quite a broad um, set of measures. Um, it includes um, questions around um, financial comfort, questions around housing, um, physical health, and also various measures of mental well-being um, in terms of um, the psychological health of ordinands and ministers. Some of the findings are, um, for example, that... Um, the mental health of the clergy doesn't differ that much um, from what this study says from that of the general population. Um, so it didn't find indicators um, that the, the mental sort of well-being was worse. Obviously, um, there'll be other studies that explore that in more depth. Um, another finding that sort of surprised me was that um, Ordinan's expectations in terms of how demanding ordained life is likely to be um, are actually um, sort of higher than people who are actually serving as priests report. So I don't know whether that's because um, ordinance don't want to be complacent and are perhaps being um, warned during training, you know, not to expect an easy life. Um, and perhaps once they're actually sort of doing the job, um, they do sort of feel up to the task. They don't, they, um, that was sort of a surprising, uh, surprising finding. One of the things that really jumps out as well is this idea of financial security and that most ordinands and ministers say that contrary to kind of popular belief they are on the whole financially secure. Yes so in terms of the top line finding um, about three quarters of respondents um, said that financially they were either living comfortably or doing all right. Now that is quite potentially quite closely related to the fact that um, about 82% of the ordained respondents are able to draw on other sources of income than the one that they receive for their ministry. Such um, as a spouse's income or exactly from a um, property they may own. Or yeah, I mean, I'm sure many households draw on more than one salary. That's not in itself um, unusual. I think um, what, from what I was reading the report, this um, question in particular prompted a lot of um, free-form answers. So on the survey, in addition to ticking boxes, you can make comments freely. And this apparently generated a lot of comments. Um, some of those were around retirement provision, so anxiety about, um, about being able to save. And about half of the respondents who don't have that additional income Um, said that they weren't able to save regularly and an even higher percentage um, felt that they weren't able to um, save for a pension, uh, save for retirement. But still I think a a fairly high number um, do report um, that they are sort of doing all right or or living comfortably. Uh, I think one of the things that the survey raises is 
um, this question of expectations. And so I guess it's around the extent to which the respondents um, feel that being ordained re- requires an element of sacrifice. Um, I know sort of some people um, who responded talked about um, you know, not expecting an easy life or you know being prepared to make sacrifices. And um, the the authors of the report do say that there isn't a definition that they provided of you know what unreasonable demands or um, would look like. So to an extent, it does come down to um, what people are expecting for ministry, and you know whether that's really in line with what we as a church think we're asking of people. One of the other things that jumped out at me reading your report was this idea that there wasn't significant difference between the experiences of men and women which I think will surprise quite a lot of clergy. So I think the differences from what the report authors say um, sort of fade once you factor in age um, and method of training. Um, so the fact is that um, people that get ordained under the, under the age of 32 are much, much more likely to be male. And that then brings with it um, other factors. So then you're much more likely to be um, sponsored for an incumbency, for example. You're much more likely to do residential training. I think we are seeing an increase in the numbers of young women, women under 32 getting ordained. That might then have an effect on later figures down the line about gender balance in terms of um, stipendiary ministry, the numbers of um, people having residential training who are male and female. So it's really the kind of um, interrelation of those factors which the study is exploring. So a lot of women who get ordained tend to get ordained later in life perhaps once they've had children or had a different career. Yeah. And so the kind of the stats that show women being less likely to be stipendiary and things is actually not because they are women, but because they are older than, than the average male uh, priest. I think that's what, what the study is exploring. I did speak to Liz Graveling, who is um, the, the woman behind this research, and she said, you know, the very fact that such a high proportion of the under 32s are male is, it, is itself... Um, related to gender so that really raises questions about um, why that is Um, something which has been brought up anecdotally is do young women think that going forward for ordination could um, make it less likely that they'll get married or have children and so potentially an encouraging finding of this suggests that um, that those fears may be unfounded and that um, you know you can get ordained single under the age of 32 and still go on um, to to marry um, along the way. So perhaps that'll address some of those concerns. Do we think these findings are going to be fed into the broader debate about clergy well-being? I mean, we have, we've had debates at Synod about the kind of mental and emotional and spiritual health of the clergy, the stresses and the strains of the job. Do you think these findings about actually most clergy are tick the box saying they're doing all right will be fed into that broader debate? I think already from social media, there's obviously been feedback suggesting that um, that top line finding conceals a much more complicated picture, which I don't think the authors of the study would necessarily argue with. Um, I did a story last year on a charity, Sons and Friends of the Clergy, which is um, which provides grants to um, clergy and their families who are in some kind of financial need or distress. Um, so we know that that's the case um, for some families. I think there are also questions um, around how we define um, stress, um, what is you know, a reasonable level to expect and, and what is actually psychological harm and burnout. So I think it's sort of difficult with a quantitative survey to say 
clergy, mental well-being, you know, generally people are okay because we need to drill down into how people are interpreting that. And with a survey like this, you're letting people define that for themselves. I suppose at a diocesan and deanery level, it's up to the, the bishop or archdeacon to make sure that individual clergy are doing okay. And there's a pastoral responsibility. We can't just refer to surveys to suggest everything's yeah. rosy. And I guess even if 80 plus percent say they are financially comfortable, if even you know a handful of clergy says are reporting that they're dependent upon tax cuts and benefits, that's got to be a huge concern. Even if it's a proportionally small proportion, if any clergy feel the need to rely on you know the welfare state to keep going, that's that's probably an unacceptable situation for the church to find itself in. I think it depends on on what those are. So um, you know that could be child benefit, which a lot of working families receive. I think it's also part of this question of which I've seen discussed before of if you're a priest working in a deprived area, to what extent should you be better off than your parishioners? You know, that's that's a big question, which I know sort of clergy discuss on social media. So other families rely on benefits and tax credits. Then there's a discussion about whether we're happy for clergy to, to also rely on them to that extent. But I suppose the church wouldn't want a situation where people only put themselves forward for ordination if they're assured of a sort of second income to make things more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of the findings um, which I think diocese and bishops will want to look at was um, that there were relatively low reports of people feeling supported by diocese and bishops. Um, although when they compared that to secular employers, um, it was a bit higher. I think there probably are still questions around why more people didn't say that they felt supported um, in that way. So Hector Sanz, the former chief executive of the Financial Services Authority, has played a key part in the Archbishop of Canterbury's mission to take on high-cost credit providers. So Hector chaired the Archbishop's task group on responsible credits and savings, and is now a trustee of the Just Finance Foundation, which is implementing the Archbishop's vision for a fairer financial system. So Hector wrote exclusively for the Church Times this week about fixing the broken economic system. I spoke to him. So the Archbishop of Canterbury argued recently that the British economic model is broken. Um, that's something you agree with? Broadly speaking, yes. The phrase economic model is quite wide-reaching. From my point of view, I'd focus in on the concept of the financial services industry. And I think there is plenty of evidence that it doesn't deliver all that it should for everybody that it should help. And in, in the piece you've written for the Church Times this week, um, you say that traditionally it's been argued that problems with the financial system should be addressed by government and regulator, and also exhorting companies to improve their culture and behave better. Speaking as a former regulator, you say this is not enough. I mean, what, what did your time as head of the FSA teach you about this? Well, I certainly don't want to minimise the role that the authorities, the regulator, government, and of course, above all, financial services firms should play. And at the end of the day, we certainly won't get the reforms we need without an active agenda being pursued by all of those. But my point, and the point of the article, was to say that my experience did indeed tell me that that alone is not going to be enough. And it's also just a general point that this is a problem that needs to be addressed by everybody in society and can't be dealt with just by saying, uh, let the others solve it. Uh, what do I mean by that, or why did I come to that conclusion? I, I draw on a couple of points. I think in relation to regulation, uh, at the end of the day, you can set as many rules as you like, 
But if people are determined to go around them or avoid them, then they will normally find a way to do that. So as well as setting rules, you also have to encourage people to behave well. People have to want to comply. People have to want to create a better society. So there's a very strong behavioural component in all this. And secondly, from the company's point of view, companies at the end of the day are entities. Companies themselves are run by boards and, uh, and, and employees. And what matters is that the boards and employees want to do the right thing. And in particular, historically, boards and employees have been primarily focused on either their own well-being, promoting their own well-being, or delivering shareholder value, delivering corporate growth. And if you just focus on those two, you're not going to get the sort of society that we would like, I would like, and that works for everybody. So you probably need to nudge, or not indeed coerce, to nudge the companies and their boards in the right direction by resetting the goals. And you speak about implementing legislation that would require companies or firms to act in the common good, as well as delivering value to shareholders. Do you think that's something that's deliverable, that there's appetite for in Parliament? Yes. Uh, well, it's deliverable. Whether there's appetite in Parliament is a, se- a separate point. Uh, to, to be clear, companies legislation already does talk to some degree about uh, the common good agenda. So I'm not saying uh, that that idea isn't already out there. What I am, however, saying is that it needs to have much more specificity, much more bite to it, and it has to feel real for the boards and the shareholders. And some further changes to reinforce that direction of travel, I think, will be extremely helpful. Whether in the current political circumstances there is appetite for it, I don't know. I would like to think there is appetite. Whether there's parliamentary time, of course, is another question. I mean, some of the specifics you talk about are things like requiring long-term investors to invest a percentage of their funds for social action purposes. And what would you say to those who would say this is too interventionist and and might encourage investors to go somewhere with a more laissez-faire regime? Well, I think I'd say that um, we've had a laissez-faire regime, as it were, and we've got a system that, 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 to use the Archbishop's phrase, is broken. So when you want to fix something, you do need to make some determined interventions. You need to reset the direction of travel and resetting the direction of travel normally does require specific interventions if society wants to change its direction it has to do so through its levers and its levers of the democratic process and legislation do you think there's popular democratic support for these measures well it's uh, it's difficult for me as an individual to, to, to judge that when i go around communities and churches with my uh, a role as a, a trustee of Just Finance, I certainly sense support for it amongst those communities. I think at the end of the day, it's a democratic process. So if it's for others to judge whether there's widespread support, I think what I'm trying to do is table the proposal so that it's fully debated. And in the belief that there is widespread support, ultimately, the politicians would take it up. You write a lot in the piece about what the church can do to help reset the economic agenda. What would you say to those in business and politics who sometimes say that church leaders aren't qualified to comment on this, they should just stick to more spiritual matters? Well, I'm not a, not, not a theologian, but personally, I think at the end of the day, if the church isn't impacting on communities, isn't helping communities, isn't present in the communities, then it's not a real uh, living church. I do, however, agree that if you are going to make interventions, if you are going to put forward proposals, 
in areas which require a degree of technical expertise, if you will, regulation, for example, uh, then you should do so from a position of knowledge. So I think what I would uh, would support is knowledgeable, thoughtful intervention by the church to deliver practical results which are aligned with its theology and its purpose. I mean, you know Archbishop Justin Welby well, Sir Hector, and, and have worked with him um, on some of these initiatives. Do you think his slightly unusual background as having worked in the finance world gives him a credibility with business leaders? Most definitely. To my, to my earlier point, if you do want to intervene with proposals for change in technical areas, you need to do so from a position of knowledge and a position of respect and acknowledgement of that knowledge. And I think he's well placed to do that. You also write in your piece that we should draw hope from the church's success in setting the agenda in respect of high cost of credit providers. This is, of course, a reference to the so-called war on Wonga. You, you chaired the Archbishop of Canterbury's task group on responsible credit and savings. I mean, what did the group achieve looking back? Well, it's always, I think, at the end of the day, for others to determine whether it did well or not, as it were. But I can certainly identify a number of practical achievements. I think, first and foremost, what we did was raise the awareness in the church community of the importance of the church engaging with the financial well-being agenda and that that looking after your financial affairs looking after your money well is central to personal well-being and is central to living a fulfilled christian life and recognizing therefore that it was a legitimate area as it were for the church to engage with i think probably uh, from my perspective anyway was its biggest achievement but then we did deliver on a number of practical practical projects uh, the most important of which was i think i hope will become a very significant contributor to the improvement of financial education in the U- uk so this is the initi- initiative to uh, introduce uh, in partnership with credit unions uh, financial education uh, uh, into uh, church primary schools and that we're now with the help of uh, Virgin Money up to sort of nearly 250 schools in that project and it's going very well and I would be optimistic that ultimately which would be my goal it becomes a national a national uh, 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 project so that would be a, a significant achievement we also created the Just Finance Network which uh, is, gives an opportunity for individual congregations and individual churches to get involved in helping the community finance uh, agenda, helping develop their local community finance organisations. In my mind, uh, that partnership between church, community finance and education is is central to a a healthy community. With respect to the Wongs of this world, I mean, the Archbishop has said we're going to compete them out of existence, but the legislative environment changed, I think, didn't it, uh, to resolve some of the issues that the church had Yes, so I think this the the, the other aspect of the uh, Archbishop's initiative here, which is really important, certainly to the wider question of influencing further developments in the financial services industry, is that I do think the Archbishop's intervention on Wonga, supported subsequently by the Archbishop's task group, was a key factor in changing the climate and then subsequently in changing the regulatory environment in respect to high-cost credit providers. It was a change in regulation which has led to a dramatic change in their business model. But I don't personally think, it's only it's a matter of opinion, but I don't personally think that change in regulation would have occurred without the Archbishop's intervention. And that takes us back to my article, i.e., 
takes us back to the point that the uh, the church can create a climate that then leads to change. The change itself has to be done uh, by the democratic process, but the church should not be afraid to raise those questions. You say that clergy are still perhaps too hesitant to get involved in some of these issues, restricting it to you know the annual sermon on tithing. I mean, why do you think there's hesitancy and, and what could they do? I mean, I should say on a positive side first that there is a lot of evidence of many more clergy engaging with this agenda than the what than they than there was a couple of years ago. So good progress is being made, but I'm always looking to do more, as you can imagine. And certainly, it is my sense that we still have a body of the clergy out there who are just nervous about engaging with the money topic. That may well be for a number of different reasons. They may well not feel fully equipped themselves. They may be anxious about the impact it would have on the congregation. Uh, but we, the Just Finance Network, and and certainly my personal opinion is that all those anxieties can be uh, overcome uh, with support and education, and that the impact of engaging fully with that agenda, in terms of a positive impact on the community, makes it a well worthwhile endeavour. You also mentioned in your piece the church commissioners and how they can show leadership through the investments they make. Yes, I very much think that uh, when you think about how can the church show leadership, showing practical leadership, uh, putting your own money to work, as it were, uh, is very important. And the obvious institution to show practical leadership in money matters is the church commissioners. They've already done a lot, for example, in developing, I think, a world-class set of uh, investment principles around ethical investing. Uh, but I think they could do more uh, in terms of practical initiatives, that in particular they could give thought to how could they could put much more of their money to work in social impact investing, potentially doing it alongside other institutions. So there's a lot more that could be done in that field, and I very much hope they give consideration to that. In terms of individual congregants in the churches, what, what do you think they could be doing to engage with these issues? Well, I think there are two key elements here, and I'd encourage them, by the way, as you might expect, to take a look at the Just Finance website, which lays out a number of options. But the two key elements would be to engage more fully with the development of your local community finance institutions, in particular your local credit union, where you could become either a depositor or a borrower or a volunteer. So supporting the development of your local uh, credit union. And then secondly, more generally giving thought to how, as a volunteer, you can help others manage their money uh, well so that their own personal well-being is enhanced and their lives are more fulfilled as a result. What's been grabbing your attention in this week's paper, Tim? Um, there's a really interesting feature um, which is looking forward to an event we have next month called The Parish, Has It Had Its Day? Um, and that's going to be a really interesting event at Simulitis in London with a, a number of experts, parish priests, theologians, bishops, looking at the concept of the parish. And, and build up to that, uh, there's a feature here which is just kind of little snapshots from across the Church of England from priests um, talking about their thoughts on the parochial system, uh, whether it works, where it doesn't work. Um, in general, I think fair to say most people still very in favour of, of the parish, so that's definitely worth a read. I was really interested in Angela Tilby's column, which responds to last week's research on the latest British Social Attitudes Survey, suggesting that more and more people are selecting uh, non-religious when they're asked about their identity. 
And she suggests that perhaps part of the answer is getting thoughtful, culturally literate lay people who could begin to question the received wisdom and would relish the challenge. And when I was reading that, one of the people I was thinking of was Francis Spufford and his book, Unapologetic, um, perhaps one of the people that would fit the bill there. Absolutely. I enjoyed Sarah Merrick's interview in our feature section with the novelist Catherine Fox, where she talks about her new book, Realms of Glory, um, the final volume of her trilogy about the Church of England. Uh, Catherine Fox is someone who I think many people really enjoy reading and, and find her very funny and not altogether predictable. Um, you would have seen our letters page last week. There are some people who aren't really fans of Catherine Fox, but I suppose you can't please everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website www.churchtimes.co.uk If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer? One month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening.